Welcome to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. May the Word of God be a blessing to you. Connect with us and consider giving online at lifespringchurch.us. As you come to the end of the year, can I just give a moment of pastoral transparency? Not all pastors are this way. Some are, some aren't. A couple of my pastoral friends, we kind of fall in the category of we hate holiday Sundays. It feels like an impossible task because people have an expectation. You're going to talk about the freedom on the 4th of July. You're going to talk about being a soldier on Memorial Day and Veterans Day. You're going to preach about Jesus on Christmas. You're going to preach about thankfulness on Thanksgiving. You know, just kind of like, you know, February, you got to preach about love. Pastor, come on, you got to preach about love. So there's kind of this preset expectations with holidays, and you can never live up to the expectations. It just seems like it's difficult. But we're excited that we are moving into the holiday season. And, and as we're moving into the holiday season, I've been praying this week, asking the Lord, all right, Lord, the last couple of years I've done like five Sundays in a row on Christmas. I'm thankful for your birth, but I'm about Christmas out on December Christmas sermons. And I was like, Lord, just give me some direction for closing out the year. I think it's important how you end. In fact, how you end is probably more important than how you begin. How we end the year matters. And so the Lord laid a word in my heart. And that last song we sung today was confirmation. And you'll understand that more as we move along today. And I don't call the musicians and tell them this is what I'm doing or what we're preaching or our topic. They're just as surprised as you guys on Sunday. It's amazing how the Lord just works it all out. But the Lord laid a word on my heart, and that word was identity. And so for the next four Sundays, I want to preach and teach to us about identity. Today, we're going to begin a three-part series, and then... Four weeks from now, we'll talk about a fourth aspect of identity. But we're going to begin a three-part series today. This is not my series that I put together. It's actually from a pastor, now evangelist, named Raymond Woodward. You may have heard of him before. He, teach, he preached and taught this lesson. And so I'm going to steal his notes and make it fit here. Is that all right? Anybody ever rented a tuxedo before? This is a tuxedo rental message. We'll tailor it to fit us. We'll all wear our, is it called a cummerbund? What is that thing called? Man, I'm breaking out the 80s. <clears throat> so we're going to begin a series called Threefold Chord of Apostolic Identity. The Threefold Chord of Apostolic Identity. And our topic today, one of the strands or one of the cords, the folds of the cord, we'll talk about today is this word, this idea, this theological concept, principle, the oneness of God, the oneness of God, the singularity of God. We're going to begin in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 12, Ecclesiastes 4 and 12. This will kind of become our motto verse for the next three Sundays. Well, today and the next two Sundays. 
Ecclesiastes 4 and 12. If one prevails against him, two shall withstand him. In this last statement, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We're going to talk about three different folds or cords, three different strands that help identify us as, here's a, here's a word you don't use every day, apostolics. What's it mean to be an apostolic? You can be seated this morning. There's many, many different words in the world today that describe different religious groups, different Christian groups, different ways in which people interact with the Word of God and with God. You know, I've, I've kind of taken an approach here at LifeSpring Church. We're going to encompass the true meaning of all these different words and, and let them speak to who we are and what it is we believe and our belief system. So here at LifeSpring Church, we are Christians first. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, to be a Christian means we follow John 3.16. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died to redeem us. That's what Christianity is. We believe in Jesus Christ. Christians. If you break down the word Christian, it means it's Christ-like. So we live our lives to be like Christ. So our belief system is a Christian belief system. We also experience, have experiences we have a Pentecostal experience. We, some may call, claim that we are Pentecostal by organization or by church religious group. But I, I think it's bigger than just being associated with a church religious group. It's an experience. It's the experience that God said where he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. That's the Pentecostal experience. Acts chapter 2 is when Pentecost was fully come. It was more than just the feast and more than just holidays. And I can't preach about all these. I got a lot of notes to get through today. But Pentecost is when they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And that's the experience that we have. We are spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-taught people. Amen? Amen. And then we are apostolic. Now that's maybe a new word that we don't use a whole lot. The Bible tells us in Acts 4 and 42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Apostolic is our teaching, it's our belief system, it's the structure on which our doctrines and principles are founded upon. The Bible says we should be built upon the foundation of the apostles' doctrine, the apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. How did the apostles know what to teach and preach? Well, they spent three years, three and a half years, at the feet of Jesus learning everything that he taught. And so the apostles' doctrine is not the doctrine of men. The apostles' doctrine is the doctrine of God as taught by the apostles. And we have a devoted lifestyle. Romans 6 and 22 says, And now being made free from sin, we become servants of God. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So we are Christian. We are apostolic. We are Pentecostal. And we are consecrated and devoted people. Now that's a lot about identity right there. We're going to jump and dig into some of these different aspects over the next three Sundays today and the next two Sundays. 
A threefold cord is not quickly, or some translations say easily, broken. If you've uh, ever bought a new shirt or new pair of pants, maybe a new suit jacket, there seems like there's always a spare string hanging out somewhere, right? Don't try what I'm about to say with a sweater. Most of the time you'll just grab that string and you'll give it a big yank and it'll break off. Don't try that with a sweater. You'll end up with a snag or a, it may come unraveled on you. But that simple little thread, it's easy. You can just grab it and pull it and it just breaks. It's no big deal, right? It just snaps. But what happens if you take the fibers of that thread and you take the fibers of another thread and you begin to twist them together and you begin to multiply the threads over and over again until you get a cord? That's an old word. We think of cords today, we think of plugging in an appliance, but before there were extension cords and plug-in cords, a cord meant a rope. You get a single strand of rope. It's not a, a thread, but it's, it's multiple threads all put together. And, and it can hold a little bit of weight, but you put much stress on it, you're going to break that single cord. But if you get three cords and you begin to wrap them together, now you have a substantially sized rope that can hold a ship, can tackle down cargo. You now have something that is strong and is not easily broken. The three concepts we're going to talk about today and the next two Sundays are each cords in our identity that make us who we are. I want to be clear today, much of what we're going to talk about is strictly based upon Scripture and an understanding of Scripture. This is not three identifying factors from a denomination. These are not three identifying factors from creeds or from man-made religion. These are three identifying factors straight from Scripture. I'm excited to teach this series to us today at Life Tree Church because... Well, I felt like it, it leads us and gives us an understanding, a deeper understanding of who we are as a church. And just maybe another pastoral insight, I felt the liberty to preach this to us. Coming up January, we'll be 10 years old as a church. It's hard to believe it's already been 10 years. And we've had congregation grow and increase and shrink and decrease and grow and increase and shrink and decrease. Somebody said when you plan a church, you should expect on going through three congregations before it really starts to stick. I don't know where they got the number three from. I, I think we're beyond that. But it's starting to stick is my point. And over the last two or three months, I've experienced and seen a, a greater sense of unity, a greater growing unity among us. And I'm encouraged. Because it's one thing to plant a seed and hope. But it's something else when you begin to see the sprout come out of the ground and you begin to see something taking root and beginning to grow and becoming something. You can live off the anticipation and the, and the hope that someday the, the seed will sprout. But it doesn't take very long after that hope runs out and you're like, man, that didn't work out, did it? 
when you see that sprout begin to come up, then you begin to feed it, you begin to water it, you get excited, and then you anticipate it bearing forth fruit. So we're excited to see that we are taking root as a church and becoming kind of creating our own little identity, kind of getting our own little culture that's starting to, to mesh and come together. And so I'm excited about that, and i got to keep moving on here this morning. <clears throat> it's because of all of that I feel the liberty to begin to speak to us about who we are as Pentecostal, apostolic, Bible-believing individuals. First one we're going to talk about is this idea of the singleness of God, the oneness of God. The Gospel of John is probably one of the most unique of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels of the New Testament. Matthew preached and, and wrote with the intention of telling the Jews that Jesus was Messiah. His audience was like him, Jewish. Mark wrote to the Romans to show them that Jesus was a suffering servant. Luke wrote to the Greeks to share with them that Jesus was a perfect man. Luke, if you read through Luke, it, it often speaks of the humanity of Christ. But John, John's different. John's unique. John is is, is way different. John was written 60 years after the New Testament church was born. And it begins in John chapter 1 and verse 1 is where we're going to go to. It begins completely different than any of the other gospels. It reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 tells us, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John takes a completely different perspective on writing about the life of Jesus Christ. From the very opening sentence, John is on a mission. His mission is to prove that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. The others were teachers. The other three Gospels teach us about Christ. John is a proof text for who Jesus is. That he is the true and only God manifested in flesh. Yeah, I'm getting a little head into Christmas. If you read the book of John, you'll find that the majority of it is estimated around 90% of the writing in the book of John is unique. It's, it's individual to the book of John. John doesn't tell any parables. There's no parable stories in the book of John. Most of the miracles recorded in John are unique to the book of John. For example, the the story of Lazarus being risen from the dead, it only exists in the book of John. Everything that John wrote about was in the context, Jesus Christ is who he said he was. John is the only 
gospel who records the I am statements of Jesus. John records Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How interesting it is that this carpenter's son from the little town of Nazareth, born in the little area called Bethlehem, would come around using these incredible I am statements. We're going to dig into this I am statement that Jesus Christ would use in its purpose. Because here's this seemingly insignificant individual who has stepped on the scene and he begins to use language that goes all the way back to the patriarch of Moses. Not just the revered patriarch, but the one who set much of their Jewish tradition in order by the commandment of God. Not only did he receive the Ten Commandments, but he's the one that laid out the whole building of the tabernacle, the building of the temple, the, the, the order in which it was to be done. This is the priest. This is what a high priest is. This is the show, table of showbread. This is all the different furnishings of the temple. This is how it all works and how it all operates. The very foundation of their custom and tradition come from Moses, who said he got it from God, and this man shows up using this I am statement. It's significant because when Moses was at the burning bush, what did God say to him? How did God identify himself out of the burning bush? I am that I am. He was using this I am language, seemingly casual, when he referred to himself. This matters. There are many theologians who may have missed this in the reading of scripture and in their academic study of the word. But the Pharisees of Jesus' day didn't miss it. They caught every part of it. It's part of what really got them riled up. It's the reason in John chapter 8, the Pharisees were ready to take stones up and to stone Jesus. He made statements like, before Abraham was, I am. He made this statement, if you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. He said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am. He spoke his name, his rightful name. What about the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He identifies himself. As the I am. To Peter walking on the water. In the raging waves. In the garden at midnight. He identifies himself. He's again and again. Using this language that ties his mortality. To the divinity. Of the one who spoke to Moses. We're going to dig into a little bit of 
of history and maybe a little bit of, I guess the word is lexicon. So I'll stay with me for a minute because this, this is just a little bit of an education. This is the teaching part of the message today. The original form spoken by Moses by God himself carries the concept of an eternal God. The, this I am that I am or simply the I am. In the English language, it seems odd to use a pronoun and a verb together as an identifying factor. But when we dig into this, it'll, it'll make more sense. Moses asks, who should I say sent me? I am. Well, to us, that sounds crazy. Who, do you pray? who did you pray to today? I prayed to I am. doesn't fit our, our English language. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. This, this I am phrase speaks to one who is eternal, self-existent. Maybe some, some other words that play into that, that that help us understand is someone who is omnipotent. That means someone who has all power. Someone who is omnipresent. means they exist everywhere all at once. Someone who is omniscient. Someone who knows all things. In the Hebrew, there was a word that described God. It was the word Yahweh. We've all heard the word Yahweh before. This is a a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word Yahweh actually comes from four consonants. The Y, the H, the V, and the H. Or the W. It's called the Yod, the He, the Vav, and the He. If you put those four consonants together, Y, H, W, H. Theologians have come up with a, a phrase for that. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Some people call it the Tetragram. It's the Y, H, W-H. It's the Hebrew consonants for the word Yahweh. Now, this matters because in Hebrew, they didn't have their vowels. And so you inserted the vowels yourself. You just wrote it in consonants. Or, in, yeah, consonants. If you translate the Hebrew into the English language, the Y becomes an H. Or, excuse me, a J. The Y becomes a J. H-V-H. We put in our vowels and you have Jehovah. So Yahweh in Hebrew, translated to English, is Jehovah. So if you want to talk about the one who is eternal, all-existent, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, you're talking about Jehovah. And we worship Jehovah. We, We know him by that descriptive term, Jehovah, and other things related to how he acts in our lives or how he works in our life. We know him as Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom. We all know the song, right, from the the 90s that talks about he's Jehovah this and Jehovah that. These are all descriptive terms speaking about who God is. He is the eternal one who heals. He is the eternal one who gives us peace. He is the eternal one who is our banner. He's the eternal one who's Gives us strength. He's the eternal one who gives us healing. All these compound words, Jehovah, whatever. 
This matters because the Jewish people held these descriptive terms for God in super high regard. When the law said not to blaspheme or to profane the name of the Lord, they took it with utmost respect. Here's what Leviticus 24 and 16 says. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregants shall surely stone him as well as the stranger. And he that is born in the land, and when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. That's pretty straightforward. If you were to hear somebody blaspheme the name of God, just pick up stones and start chunking them. What would happen if we did that today? We'd probably run out of rocks. We ought not to blaspheme the name of God. We ought not to use his name in vain. We ought to honor and respect his name. And that's not what the message is about today, but it's still good to say. Here's a little bit of history. The Jews were in Babylonian captivity, and it was around... 450 B.C. that they returned from this captivity and they reverenced the name of Yahweh so greatly that they had outlawed its use amongst the people. Now the Jewish people at this time had very definitive castes or levels in their society. The common people, the educated people, the religious people. And the common people first were, were outlawed from using Yahweh, you can't say Yahweh, you're, you're not good enough, basically, to, to use God's name. And it began to grow, and it began to expand beyond just the common people, all the way up through the educated people, and, and even the common priests, the ones who serve daily, began to reverence the name so much that they wouldn't even speak the name of Yahweh. Only the high priest during the once a year at the time of atonement, was able to speak the name Yahweh. Then there was a, pre, a high priest by the name of Simeon, who was the last of high priests, and he died in 270 B.C. After this, Simeon passed away. There became a total prohibition on using the name Yahweh amongst the Jewish people. Now this matters because they still wanted to refer to God. And so they had to come up with another word that would represent God, but wasn't as holy as the word Yahweh. So the Hebrew word that they came up with, and you've, you've heard this word, is Adonai. Adonai. Adonai simply is a Hebrew word which means Lord. It became the substitute for Yahweh. When it was read, the Jewish congregations would reply... Hashim, which means the name. And you probably, if you have Jewish friends today or you, you've associated with, with a Jewish person at all, you've often heard them refer to Hashim. That's, that's their word today, their Hebrew language that they use for God. It's interesting that Hashim does not mean God. It doesn't mean the eternal one. It doesn't mean the all-existing one. It doesn't mean omniscient, omnipresent. It means the name. They're still... Orthodox Jews today are, are still looking for the name. I'm glad I know the name. 
I'm glad I've had a revelation of the name. This, this God who is I am, this God who is Yahweh, this God who is Jehovah, this God who is Adonai has revealed himself to us by his name, and his name is Jesus. We're getting to it. By the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, it had been 300 years since the Jewish people were permitted to speak the name Yahweh for God. This is the reason for the, the little history lesson. 300 years they've gone without saying God's name. Without speaking His name. The intent and the purpose was reverence for God. But then the Gospel of John begins to write and it begins to tell us about this carpenter's boy from Nazareth born in Bethlehem in the most ridiculous of circumstances in a stable because his parents were there to pay taxes and they ran out of room in the inn. This young child is, is now grown up and he's now walking through the streets and he's with casualty or casually using the I am statement. He's casually calling himself Yahweh. He's casually referring to himself as the omnipotent one and the omnipresent one and the omniscient one. He's casually referring to himself as the eternal God, the God that our forefathers spoke to. You think people's eyebrows went up. You think people began to listen. You think people become uncomfortable when he was around. Because when Jesus says, I am the first and the last, and besides me there is no God. What are you saying? You don't even have a house to live in, man. You're just a vagabond that roams the countryside. You're God? These I am statements he's tying himself to. Isaiah 44 and 8. There is no God. There is, is there a God besides me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Isaiah 44 and 24. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, and spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. He's tying the I am's of the Old Testament to his statements, I am. I am um, Isaiah 45 and 5. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. Isaiah 45 and 18. I am the Lord and there is none else. Isaiah 45 and 22. I am God and there is none else. I have to emphatically state to us today that Jesus Christ in his I am statements, was not referring to himself in a role of deity. He was not referring to himself as a characteristic of God. He was not referring to himself in sonship 
in fatherhood or by spirit. He was referring to himself as the entirety of the one true holy God. So when you begin to worship the name of Jesus Christ, you invoke the power of every covenant name of God from the Old Testament even through to some of the New Testament. When Jesus says, I am, he was not just taking a pronoun and a verb, smashing them together to come up with a sentence. He was tying himself to the eternal God. He reaches all the way back into the covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I promised Abraham he'd be the father of many nations. I made Jacob Israel, and he become the father of, this Jew, of these people. I am the one who delivered you from, Israel, from Egypt's bondage. I'm the one who split the sea. I'm the one who was the fire by day. I'm the one who was the cloud by night. He's tying himself to all of the miraculous hands and workings of God. John 8 and 28 says, And then Jesus said unto them, When ye had lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he. Something specific happens at the crucifixion of Christ that takes and culminates the history of the Jewish people, the traditions of the Jewish people, the teachings of Christ and his life, and it brings it all together in his death. Leviticus 21 and 10 tells us, and he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. This is important. It feeds into the religious tradition, the ceremony, and the sacredness of the high priest. There were things high priest could do. And this lists a couple of things the high priest could not do. A high priest could not rend their clothes. It was often their, their custom. When, when bad news would come or tragedy would befall them, it was an act of humility. It was an act of sacrifice that they would tear their clothes, the Jewish people, and they would cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes, and they would go into a time of mourning. The priest was not to engage in that activity. He was to stand above and be the voice of God in those times. By engaging in the act of ripping his clothes or uncovering his head, he, he removes himself from the anointing and the consecration of his life. With that understanding, let's go to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to start at verse 61. Mark 14 and 61. This is Jesus Christ standing before the Pharisees. And he says, and he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you Christ? Are you the anointed one? 
the son of the blessed? Are you the son of Mary? Are you the son of God? And here's Jesus' answer. I am. Now to us, that's just a casual English response. I am. Yes, yes, I am. But you tie in the, the Hebrew and the significance of that phrase, I am. He's not just giving them a simple yes answer. He's saying all the way back to Moses and all the way back to all the covenants and all the way back to all the promises. He's standing before these who knew it theologically, who knew it academically. I am God standing before you. He says, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witness? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. I find it interesting. That the Levitical covenant was if anyone was to blaspheme, you were to immediately pick up stones and stone them to death. Yet the religious ones heard him, they accused him of blaspheme, but they didn't have the guts to obey the law. They were going to push that off on the Romans. Because they understood when he said, I am. Oh, I can't kill God, but I'll let somebody else do it. I'll condemn him to death. I'll make sure somebody else takes care of the, the dirty work. But I'm going to rile the people up. I'm going to create the mob. I'm going to create the sentence. I'm going to create the hysteria about who he is. It's interesting. Some theologians and scholars believe it was in this setting, in this instance, where the priest rent his clothing, that the high priest, the office of the high priest was removed from the Levitical priesthood and placed upon Jesus Christ because at the renting of his garments, he removed himself from the anointing and the consecration of his life. And it was in this moment, as Jesus is now being led away, heading to his trial, that he takes on the role of our high priest. Hebrews 4 and 14 tells us, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus has enraged the Sanhedrin. He's repeatedly uttered the unspeakable name of God not just in teaching in the synagogue, but in reference to himself. He, in their eyes, has committed blasphemy. And so they rush to do their work. They pull the vilest of sinners, the vilest of criminals, and they stand in before, they, they take advantage of the law of the Romans. You must release somebody to us, Passover. Give us Barabbas. And crucify Jesus. Pilate, if you've read the story and you've dug into the details, 
It wasn't that Pilate was on board with this solution, this judgment. It was really the mob rule. Even after being warned by his wife who had a dream, he still was overtaken by the political power of the mob. He washes his hands of the death of Jesus Christ. But Pilate did something. It is Pilate who wrote a title and put it on the cross. It's John chapter 19, verses 19 through 22. It says, and Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read, many, was read then by many of the Jews. For it was placed where Jesus was crucified, near to the city. It's believed that it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So that all who passed by would see this identifier of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Of course, this irritated the Sanhedrin and the chief priests. And they began to ask the king, hey, 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 it's, it's not going to sign up. And here's what he says. And I think we're a couple verses down. Then said the chief priest to the Jews, write not the king of the Jews. But he said, this is Pilate, said, I am king of the Jews, Pilate answered. What I have written, I have written. In other words, I can kind of hear the irritation in his voice. You're making me kill an innocent man. How much further are you going to push this? I wrote a sign. I want the sign on there. Get out of my courtroom. <laughs> and so the sign is placed over the head of Jesus Christ. In an unusual move, Pilate himself writes the encryption. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. What's interesting is about this, as as everybody who walks by sees this statement, the King of the Jews. There was a reason why this upset the Pharisees. There's a reason why the religious class of that day was irritated and, and bothered by this insignia written across the head of the cross where Jesus was hung. Of course, it was not written in English. It did not say in English, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was written in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, it would have said, Yeshua Hanazari Vimelech Hayedhem. Now, you can just tell I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But the reason this matters is because if you look at the first letter of each of those statements, of those words in the Hebrew, it is Yeshua, Y, Hanezari, H, Vimelech, V, Hayedim, H. It is Yad Ha Vah Ha. It is the Jewish 
word, or the Hebrew word for Yeshua, or Yeshua, excuse me. Every single Jew that walked by that cross seen the sacred name of God above the head of Jesus Christ. There was no denying the eternal one hung on the cross. There was no denying that the Savior to save the world hung on the cross. The, the only ones who missed it had to be the ones who deliberately refused to see it. And the ones who saw it, it made them angry because it wasn't the God that they wanted. It wasn't the royal priest who they thought it should be. It wasn't one who came in on white stallions to take over and rule. It wasn't one who came in with earthly might and earthly power and earthly influence. No, it was just a simple baby born in a stable who had grown up a vagabond living on the hillside who walked among the streets teaching people casually calling himself God, now hung on the cross with a sign above his head that said he was Yeshua. He was the eternal one. Can I tell you today, there is no mistaking in our teaching and in our belief that Jesus Christ is God manifested in the flesh. I believe in fatherhood. Scripture teaches it. I believe in sonship. Scripture teaches it. I believe in the working of the Holy Spirit. We're a spirit-filled church. I believe in it. But these are characteristics of the one true living God. These are titles that describe who He is. He is not by name Father. He is not by name Son. He is not by name Spirit. These are not a, a holy trinity of who He is. God is not divisible by three. There are not three unique persons or individuals of God. God is one. Jesus Christ was the ultimate God of the Old Testament. Robed in flesh, living amongst us. Yes, He operated as our Heavenly Father because we were born again by Him. Yes, He operated as the Son of God because the Son of God had to die to redeem us. And we know Him as the Spirit because His Spirit comes back to live in us. But He is God. Colossians tells us He is the image of the invisible God. Paul wrote to us multiple times stating that he is the God manifested in flesh. He is the one true God come to us. Jesus Christ is not a part of God. He is all of God come to us. John chapter 20 verses 12, 11 through 12. But Mary stood without the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, this is not Mary the mother of Jesus, this is Mary Magdalene. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeing two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Hold on a second. Get the mental picture. Mary is sticking her head inside the tomb. And she sees the imagery, the silhouette, the visual that all Jews celebrated. 
She's seeing an image that stands out to her as more than just a religious symbol, but it's a sign of atonement. It's a sign of mercy. It's a sign of forgiveness. As she sticks her head into the tomb, she sees two angels, one on the one end and one on the other end. This represents the same image that's set behind the veil in the holies of holies. The Ark of the Covenant, where at one side an angel was draped over, touching the wings of the other angel. Two angels facing each other. And between those two angels set the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. It's this image that Mary Magdalene sees when she sticks her head inside the tomb. She sees two angels facing each other. And she sees an empty spot where he had laid. She probably got the revelation. And I hope you're getting the revelation this morning. That the one who laid on that tomb, in that tomb, laid in that spot between where the angels was. His precious blood laid there. His sacrifice laid there. God laid there. And God became man so that he could take on flesh. Because without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. God didn't come to just un- to atone our sin. But God come to forever remit our sin. He became the ultimate sacrifice for us. Jesus Christ was not a servant of the Almighty God sent to do the work of God. Jesus Christ was God who came to redeem us to himself. That's biblical language. John's gospel culminates with this revelation given by doubting Thomas. We give Thomas a hard time for being a doubter. I have to ask myself, how would I have reacted? Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room after his resurrection. Thomas wasn't there for whatever reason. He comes back and they begin to tell him, hey, Jesus is alive. He was just here. We just saw him. And Thomas, nah, I think you guys are delirious. Not until I touch his side and put my finger in his prints in his hand will I believe it. Thomas said, not until I physically touch him will I confess and know and believe what it is you're telling me. And so there Jesus appears. Here, Thomas, touch my hands. Here, Thomas, place your hand in my side. And in this moment, Thomas has an incredible revelation. He exclaims, My Lord and my God. A Jewish man cries out. Here's the two Greek words he screams. Kyrios and Theos. My Lord and my God. Kyrios being my Lord, my master, my ruler. And Theos, the supreme one, divinity. My Lord and my God. You, the ultimate Savior, the eternal one, are now my Lord and my God. I see you as one person. 
I see you united. You're not just some cosmic guy out there that I'm worshiping. But you have come and you are here and you rule and reign in my life. One individual trying to explain this situation, circumstance, event in the life of Thomas, refusing to acknowledge the unity of God with Christ, him being a singular deity, a singular person, and trying to reason it away, could only simply say, Thomas was so overcome by shock that he profaned the name of God and screamed, my Lord, my God, in vanity. How absurd. Because if you study out the Greek, this word kairos, which means Lord, in the rest of the New Testament, was never used outside of the context of referring to Jesus Christ. From that moment on, this Greek word was set aside by the apostles to only represent Jesus Christ. You want to talk about a life-changing event. It changed their vocabulary. It changed the definition of their words. John 20, 30-31. This is my... Last passage today. I've given you enough Bible to float the Titanic. John 20, 30 through 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Remember, we're talking about John, who writ or wrote the book of John with the intended purpose of proving that Jesus is who he said he was. So in his, this part of his, his writing, as he's closing out, what we have is John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He says, Jesus did other things, but they didn't have time to write them. But these are written, the things that I am writing, that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have life through his name. Not through him. Through his name. John's making a declaration here. It's the same declaration that the apostles made in Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by where we must be saved. John's saying, I wrote what I wrote with intention. I wrote the stories that I wrote. I, I'm reaccounting the history that I'm reaccounting with a, a defined purpose to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, and he is, then he is the only one who can save you and salvation comes through his name. This is why when we repent of our sins and we are obedient to the gospel, we ask Jesus Christ 
to forgive us of our sins. That's why when we're buried in the waters of baptism, we don't refer to the offices of God or the titles of God in baptism. We refer to the name of God in baptism. We baptize in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is why when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, we don't believe it is a part of God or a, a third deity that comes to live inside of us, but we believe it is the very spirit of the resurrected Savior who comes to live inside of us. He said, if I go away, I will send my comforter back to you. His comforter is his spirit, which lives inside of us, leading us and guiding us and teaching us. The singularity of God is only amplified by the holiday season we're going into. God left the glories of heaven. Well, how did an omniscient God leave heaven? You can ask him when you get there. I can just tell you what scripture teaches us. And he didn't come in bodily form as a prince riding upon a white stallion. He didn't come as a warrior in all the armament of a champion. He didn't come in the scholarly robes of a professor, nor did he come wearing the crown of a king. But he said, I'll humble myself, and I'll come among them, and I'll live with them. And I'll be tempted in all manner as like they are tempted. And I'll grow up the way they've had to grow up. And I'll experience life the way they've had to experience life. And I'll understand their temptation. And I'll understand their struggle. And I'll understand their heartache. And I'll understand their tribulation. And I'll understand what it means to make sacrifice and consecration unto a holy God. And I'll do all of it without sin. So that then I can present myself as a holy sacrifice. Acceptable. To remit their sin. He came to save us. He didn't send his son to save us. He came in the role of sonship. Because he was birthed to save us. John 3.16 says. He is the only begotten. Begotten means he was birthed. He had a beginning. Getting outside of the lesson a little bit, but sonship has a beginning and sonship has an ending. If you believe that the Son of God is a second person in the Godhead, then you have to believe, according to Scripture, that the second person of the Trinity has a beginning and has an ending, which refutes the fact that he could be a God because an almighty God has no beginning and has no ending. Sonship began at the moment the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary and she was impregnated. She became with child. Sonship ends when the church is taken out of here and there's no need for the gospel to save us anymore. That's when we go to heaven and we live forever with the one true King of kings and Lord of lords forever. Fatherhood exists and God operates as our father because he says that we are the children of God. We have been adopted into his family. Individually, you and I are the children of God. 
How are we the children of God? Because of the new birth experience. We're going to talk about the new birth next Sunday. But let me give you a little taste, sample. What is the new birth? The new birth is when an old man, born in sin, shaped in iniquity, is born again of the Spirit, and we become a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. A soul which dies and is separated from God because of sin is brought to life again, new life in Christ Jesus, and it is reunited in relationship with God. This new birth can only happen because God works in us. But what causes us to be born again? It's the Father, God our Father. It's the role of fatherhood to us. There's other roles in Scripture. They've not been elevated by theologians and academics. And I'm not against academics. If you want to go to Bible school, go learn it. I went to four years of school. Didn't hurt me. But I don't have a problem with education. That's not my intent today. I lost my track of thought. It was a good idea, whatever it was. There are other, ding, there it is. There are other roles in Scripture mentioned. They've not been elevated to deity as Father, Son, and Spirit. But what about the bride of Christ? That's a role. He's the groom. We are the bride. Nobody gets buried and baptized in the name of the groom. He's our healer. Nobody gets baptized in the name of healer, the title of healer. I'm just picking now. Stand with me. Give you guys hope. The singleness of God, the oneness of God. He is God manifested in the flesh. Today we've taken a little bit of a, a different viewpoint on the oneness of God. Oftentimes we simply go to the New Testament and we dig into the teachings of Paul. And I'd love to have a Bible study with you about that if you have questions about anything that's been stated today. Today's maybe been a bit more of a, a deeper dive, and I, as we stated at the beginning, I felt the liberty to go there today in the next couple Sundays, take our roots a little bit deeper. Thank you for listening to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. Join us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit us online at lifespringchurch.us.